American girls and American guys will always stand up and salute. We'll always recognize when we see your glory flying. There's a lot of men dead, so we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our heads. My daddy served in the army. We lost his right eye, but he flew a flag out in our yard. Till the day that he died, he wanted my mother, my brother, my sister, and me to grow up and live happy in the land of the free. Now this nation that I love is falling under attack. A mighty sucker punch came flying in from somewhere in the back. Soon as we could see clearly through our big black eye, man, we lit up your world like the 4th of July. Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list. And the Statue of Liberty started shaking her fist. And the eagle will fly and it's gonna be here when you hear Mother Freedom start Hello everyone, my name is Luke Marshall and you are listening to Things Observed. And as always, I have a very special podcast for you guys today. Actually, it's not all that special. I would have liked to have come up with a more original idea for a podcast, but I did not. So we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, which is 9-11. Specifically, we're going to cover a lot of the financial aspects of it. And if I sound congested today, it's because I am. So I am getting sick. And not only am I getting sick... But I have also, just the time that the first snow of the year came around in my area, lost heating. So I've been on the space heater game big time. And uh, I've currently got my room too hot from the space heater. So I'm sweating it out. You know, it's like a little bit kind of like, you know, I'm just pretending like I'm in a sauna. And I'm regaling some friends with... uh, 9-11 truth in the sauna everybody's favorite topic of conversation very quick way to make friends and figure out well not really but more it is a way to figure out who your real friends are but anyways yeah we're going to talk about some of the financial aspects of 9-11 it might not be the longest episode ever today because yeah i don't feel very good so you know forgive me if it seems like i'm just kind of trying to get through it because I totally am. Probably going to take a fat nap after all this is over. And once again, sorry that this isn't the most original subject for a podcast. But hey, sometimes it's good to hit up the classics and good to refresh ourselves on, you know, things that we maybe have forgot about, you know. And also, there might just be a few gems hidden inside here. Some things that you perhaps may not have heard of. But anyways... Let's get into it. We'll kind of start off with the more basic stuff and work our way into the really juicy stuff, the stuff that perhaps you haven't heard of. So, 
what better place to start than Lucky Larry Silverstein? In 1998, the New York Port Authority agreed to privatize the World Trade Center buildings, and Silverstein Properties in April of 2001 would sign a 99-year lease at $3.2 billion for the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 4 and 5. And they would get a, they would finance this lease through a loan from GMAC, which is like the mortgage arm of General Motors. And there would also be a couple of individual real estate investors who would help finance the majority of the lease, which means that Silverstein Properties would only put down $14 million of its own money, which is pretty crazy when you take into account that it is a $3.2 billion lease. So I don't know what that factors into percentage-wise, but really Silverstein Properties did not put that much money down. But as you guys know, that's only the beginning of it. The Port Authority only had $1.5 billion of insurance on the World Trade Center complex. And Larry Silverstein would insist on doubling the amount. So that would come out to over $3.5 billion. So uh, he's very insistent upon getting insurance on it. And if I remember correctly, I want to say that he insisted that the insurance, you know, um, include terrorist attacks or, or something like that, but perhaps that isn't true. I don't want to speak out my behind. But anyway, Silverstein struggled to secure that much insurance for the buildings, so it had to be provided by 25 different dealers. So yeah, they had to like break up the insurance between 25 different dealers, and uh, the contracts were actually still being finalized by the time that September rolled around. So Silverstein also got the rights to rebuild should anything happen to the towers and to even expel, expand the retail space should something happen. So, uh, you know, perhaps that says that he has some sort of foreknowledge. But anyways, hours after the 9-11 attacks, before the literal dust had settled, what was Silverstein doing? Well, he was contacting his lawyers to see if the planes crashing into the North and South Tower would be considered two separate attacks, two separate incidents, you know. So he's already thinking about the payout, you know, while, uh, you know, yeah, before the dust has settled. And he would spend years in court trying to secure a $7.1 billion bag, you know, got to get that bag on that Silverstein stuff. And uh, it would end up with a $4.55 billion in two, um, 2007. So uh, didn't quite get the $7.1 billion bag that he was after. But hey, $4.5 billion bag ain't half bad. And that would not stop him, though, from suing United and American Airlines for $3.5 billion over negligence. Um, which it was struck down, but then they would appeal the decision. So in 2017, Silverstein would receive over $95 million after reaching a settlement with American and United. So it was a little bit of a protracted legal case, but he would get even more money from what he uh, argued was negligence on the end of the airlines. But... The story still does not end there. In 2003, a secret deal was reached between Silverstein and the Port Authority, where the Port Authority paid back 80% of its initial equity in the lease. So, you know, as you guys remember, he only put down $14 million to begin with. 
And so they paid back 80% of the initial equity in the lease. So that gave back $98 million of the $125 million back to Silverstein Properties and the two real estate investors mentioned earlier who helped finance the bulk of the lease along with the loan from GMAC. So essentially what this means is that it eliminated all risk that Silverstein had had in the property and it would end up, you know, he would end up profiting over $4.5 billion dollars from the attacks but this is only the beginning of the strange financial occurrences that were taking place around 9-11 um, another thing that most all of you guys um, are familiar with I'm sure is the 2.3 trillion dollars that went missing from the Pentagon so on September 10th of 2001 Good old Donnie Rumsfeld held a press conference where he announced that the Pentagon was missing $2.3 trillion. And what would you know, at 9.38 a.m. on the morning after he had this press conference, a plane would just so happen to fly into the Pentagon. Um, but not only would a plane fly into the Pentagon, it would fly into its west wing, which just so happened to be the house of the budget analyst's office, where accountants were working on figuring out where the missing $2.3 trillion was. Um, so in regards to this missing $2.3 trillion, um, I guess there was nothing to worry about because good old Dov Zakheim, the comptroller of the Pentagon at the time, was the man tasked with tackling the job. And uh, for those of you guys who aren't familiar with Dov Zakheim, he had been the head of SPI International, which was a contractor for the DOD and DARPA. And um, they were even working on marketing a remote control system for um, airborne vehicles to the Pentagon. So very interesting. Uh, one can only wonder what potentially that type of technology could be used for remote control airborne vehicles. But anyways... Um, Zakheim also participated in the creation of Rebuilding America's Defenses, um, which is the Project for a New American Century document with the now infamous quote in conspiracy circles. The process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. And, you know, once again... This is just the beginning of all these strange, strange occurrences that were going on around 9-11. Because if there's anything that um, exists when it comes to 9-11, it is just a whole host of strange, anomalous occurrences that really don't make sense if it was just, you know, 19 Muslim hijackers being controlled by a guy in a cave on dialysis. Um, you know, penetrating the most sophisticated, uh, you know, security. Uh. Man, my brain is just soup. But anyways, you, you guys get where I'm going. You smell what I'm stepping in. But yeah, another one of these strange occurrences was the fact that American Airlines Flight 11 um, hit and exploded inside the 93rd and 100th floor of the North Tower, which is the exact area occupied by Marsh and McLennan, an absolutely gigantic insurance brokerage with close ties to the private intelligence firm Kroll Associates. Yeah, that's like Nick Kroll's dad, the uh, Nick Kroll, you know, the guy with the absolutely shitty TV show Big Mouth, um, a cartoon for adults. 
But um, anyways, yeah, they would have close ties to private intelligence and uh, the private intelligence firm Kroll Associates, which just so happened to hold the contract for security in the World Trade Center buildings. So anyways, let's dive a little bit into Marsh and McLennan and uh, yeah, let's just get to the bottom of it and figure out um, what all is going on with Marsh and McLennan and some of the people existing around that orbit as well. So Jeffrey Greenberg was the CEO of Marsh on 9-11 and Jeffrey is the son of Maurice Hank Greenberg who is the owner of AIG, the American Insurance Group, which is by many accounts the largest insurance conglomerate on the planet. And so Maurice's other son was Evan, who was the CEO of another giant insurance company, Ace Limited. So uh, it seems like we've got a theme running along this family. They're all very big into the insurance world. So Maurice, the patriarch in this tale, was the director of the New York Federal Reserve Bank for many years, and he would also serve as its chairman. And he was also the vice chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and would author a paper for the group called Making Intelligence Smarter, the Future of U.S. Intelligence, which has a very choice quote, which I will read really quick, um, which it's kind of worded uh, very legalistically, you know, so you kind of have to uh, pay attention as I as I read it. At least you do if uh, have to pay attention if you're someone like me who's a little bit slow and has a head full of soup this morning. Um, so, foreign policy ought to take precedence over law enforcement when it comes to overseas operations. The bulk of U.S. intelligence efforts overseas is devoted to traditional national security concerns. As a result, law enforcement must ordinarily be a secondary concern. FBI and Drug Enforcement Agency agents operating abroad should not be allowed to act independently of either the ambassador or the CIA, lest pursuit of evidence or individuals for prosecution causes major foreign policy problems or complicates ongoing intelligence and diplomatic activities. And that is the end of the quote. But anyways, what's significant about this quote? Well, it would mean that if an intelligence asset were to be picked up for a crime, I don't know, say narco trafficking or money laundering or murder or really other, you know, any other kind of crime that one could think of, that they would be saved from prosecution of that crime. So, you know, we have Maurice writing this for a Council on Foreign Relations white paper. And he's also someone who was tied in into intelligence circles anyhow. Um, so this report would actually cause Senator Arlen Specter of, you know, magic bullet infamy to throw out Maurice's name when discussing who should be the next CIA director. Speaking of, uh, you know, how he was kind of... Uh, enmeshed in that community from the start. So when the previously mentioned Kroll Associates was facing bankruptcy, AIG would come to the rescue and thereafter Kroll would be an AIG subsidiary. So in the aftermath of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Kroll would receive the contract from the New York Port Authority to upgrade security in the World Trade Center buildings. And Kroll would continue with this contract leading up to the 9-11 attacks. 
And one of Kroll's directors, Jerome Hauer, uh, managed New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani's Office of Emergency Manor Management, which was located on the 23rd floor of World Trade Center 7. And, of course, on 9-11, no police or firefighters or Giuliani or anyone else was in um, what was often referenced or referred to as Giuliani's bunker, which was outfitted with reinforced bomb-resistant and bulletproof walls, beds, showers, a water tank, and its own air supply, and three backup generators. So why was Giuliani not in his bunker? Well, according to him, he received word that the towers were going to come down, and how this could have been foreseen within an hour of the attack is anyone's guess. And perhaps more importantly, if Giuliani had received this warning, why didn't he feel the need to pass the warning along to all of the first responders working either inside or in the vicinity of the buildings, you know? So, Giuliani has, like, this doomsday bunker, basically, and, you know, kind of when would be the most opportune time to go to it. Um, him and none of his cronies go to it. And so, where was Giuliani? Well, he was in Pier 92, which just so happened to be set up as a command center because FEMA was preparing for a drill of a biochemical attack that was scheduled for the next day, which gets into some of the very interesting stuff regarding uh you know kind of the ties between uh 9-11 and the anthrax attacks which would happen not long after you know which was you know written in like big block letters and you know was saying all this stuff that was supposed to you know pin it on um islamic radicals trying to make it seem like it was the same people who did 9-11 who was behind these anthrax letters but as most of you guys probably know the strain of anthrax was an aim strain which basically means that it could have only been made in an american bioweapons lab and even the fbi now um admits you know that it is american in origin and uh you know, they just blame it on one disgruntled employee um, who I think used to work at Fort Detrick, Maryland, Biolabs. But anyhow, um, there's so much more to say about that. Um, so anyways, you know, we have um, Giuliani and Jerome Hauer and some of these other people who are at Pier 92 when the 9-11 attacks go down just because, you know, they just so happen to be preparing for a biochemical attack and uh just kind of another one of those scenarios kind of just like when the world economic forum did the uh you know simulation of a worldwide pandemic and it just so happens to take place you know like a month later or something there's a a lot of instances that one could probably pretty readily think of where you have some sort of simulation take place by these uh you know elite people and you know like basically within the month or in this case like within the week you know a very similar situation is coming to fruition so um but anyways i mean it seems like with giuliani that he was more concerned with clearing away all the evidence from the 9-11 crime scene than he was you know with just about anything else at the time while claiming he wanted to clear a path for emergency workers um, they would haul off over 1.5 million tons of, uh, you know, debris that was, uh, you know, 
a lot of it was steel, and a lot of that steel would be sold to a ch- Chinese company, Bao Steel. And it was, you know, in my opinion, most likely an effort to cover up the largest crime scene in American history. But anyways, you know, before we uh, get back to, uh, you know, I'm kind of going off on a little bit of a tangent right now. But, you know, uh, we will return to AIG here in just a second. But another person who is worth mentioning is Jerome Howard. So, uh, you know, Rudolph Giuliani would make the job of keeping New Yorkers emergency prepared, um, which had always been a job that belonged to the police. Um, Now the task of a special office, the previously mentioned Office of Emergency Management, and he would make Jerome Howard its first director. And before his position in Giuliani's office, he would be the head of emergency management for IBM, as well as being an advisor to the Justice Department. And uh, he would often brief President Clinton on bioterror threats and regularly consulted with Israeli intelligence. And Jerome Howard is kind of just like this freak who all day long thinks about, you know, these apocalyptic doomsday scenarios that's, you know, being carried out by somebody like, you know, uh, China or Iraq or something like that. So, uh, very interesting character, but it was reported that it was Howard's idea to house the Office for Emergency Management and World Trade Center 7, even though people were somewhat hesitant about that decision due to the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. But Howard would leave his role of Director of the Office of Emergency Management in 2000 only to take up a position in the World Trade Center as the Managing Director of who else but Kroll Associates, the private security intelligence firm. Um, which has been described in the media as the Wall Street's CIA. Uh, but, I mean, isn't the CIA Wall Street's CIA? It was formed by, like, a bunch of Wall Street lawyers and bankers. Uh, you know, I mean, you look back at all those, like, OG CIA guys. So I'd say the CIA is Wall Street CIA. But basically imagine that Kroll is kind of like a... Uh, a black cube kind of company, but instead of it all being former Mossad guys, it's like both former Mossad and CIA guys, you know, so we got a little bit more intelligence agency diversity in Kroll Associates, but, um, so, you know, we have Howard who would be, um, you know, the managing director of Kroll Associates, um, during the time of the 9-11 attacks, um, French intelligence would also say that Kroll was a front for the CIA as described in an article from the Washington Post. Post And Kroll would also investigate Saddam Hussein, which shows that the task that the company would work on wasn't limited to things like, you know, providing security for buildings. But, uh, you know, um, it's very possible that they were indeed a front for the CIA and, you know, perhaps even did some of the dirty work that, I don't know, maybe the CIA doesn't want to get involved with uh, there's a lot that can be said about private intelligence firms. But anyways, I will read a quote from Whitney Webb um, in regard to Hauer, and I will leave in the show notes a good link um, that y'all should check out if you want to learn more about Jerome Hauer, because I want to show that some of these suspicious people who were involved with, uh, you know, seem to have weird connections to 9-11, that it doesn't, you know, stop there, but that it continues on into the future. 
and that they are the same people who are running things now and this article does a good job of that um, but anyways so this is Whitney Webb here in 1999, the New York Times would describe Howard's job as sitting around all day thinking up of horrifying ways for things to be destroyed and people to die. It would also note that Howard described his ex expertise regarding specific emergency situations as follows. Helicopter crash, subway fire, water main break, ice storm, heat wave, blackout, building collapse, building collapse, building collapse. His obsession with building collapses even led to him to house trophies of the building collapses he had overseen and responded to. How odd then that Howard's multi-million dollar bunker itself would fall victim to building collapse, falling into its own footprint in seven seconds on September 11th, 2001. Indeed, very strange, but that is just one of many anomalies that, you know, um, exist on 9-11. And uh, not all of Kroll's employees would be as fortunate as Jerome Hauer. And instead of being on his office on 9-11, Jerome Hauer would be busy talking with Dan Rather and where he would say that Osama bin Laden was behind the attacks. But one of the Kroll employees who was not so lucky was John O'Neill. And O'Neill was, you know, just so happened to be the leading expert on Osama bin Laden due to his job that he had used to hold at the FBI, and he was offered a job at Kroll by none other than Jerome Hauer. And he had left the FBI due to his investigation into Bin Laden being repeatedly meddled with by higher-ups. And Hauer would also tell top officials in the Bush administration to start taking uh, Cipro, just another strange thing concerning Jerome Hauer. And uh, Cipro is a medication that is made to prevent infection from anthrax, as well as going on, um, you know, telling, you know, Bush officials to take uh, Cipro. He would, you know, right after 9-11, go on all the major media outlets to warn about the dangers of terrorists getting anthrax from Saddam Hussein shortly before the attacks, which would start on September 18th, 2001. So, uh, all very interesting, and once again, I will read a brief quote from Whitney Webb. Howard had prepared for a scenario just like the anthrax attacks as part of the Dark Winter Biowarfare Simulation, which occurred just months prior and at a time when Howard was a member of the John Hopkins Working Group on Civilian Biodefense, part of what is now the John Hopkins Center for Health and Security, then led by Dark Winter co-author Tara O'Toole. Um, and now, what does the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, you know, what have they done recently? Well, the Event 201 simulation, which occurred, you know, within, you know, a couple months of the start of the coronavirus outbreak that just so happened to be, uh, you know, discussing uh, what would happen if there was a worldwide p pandemic. So, you know, uh, yeah, Event 201 was John Hopkins and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in conjunction with one another, if I remember correctly. But yeah, very interesting um, how this just things happen to go <laughs> like that. You know, uh, we've got a simulation and all of a sudden, boom, it is happening in real life. But anyways, um, we'll wrap things up about Howard. 
Um, so that way we can go back to talking about, you know, some of the financial aspects of 9-11. Sorry that I'm kind of going on a bit of a ramble when it comes to Jerome Hauer. But, yeah, I just think that it's good to uh, see how the people who uh, were, you know, very suspect when it came to the 9-11 attacks, um, they haven't just completely disappeared into the woodwork, but they are very still, very much still, you know, at the helm of things. So Howard would also work with Stephen Hatfield at the Scientific Applications International Corporation, and the two would work on handling anthrax and anthrax hoax letters. And Stephen Hatfield would actually be accused of committing the anthrax attacks, but he would eventually be cleared but of any suspicion when it comes to it. But, you know, very interesting that Hauer and him worked together. And Hauer would also go on, go on to push for anthrax vaccines from the company Bioport, um, which, you know, held contracts amongst many government agencies for anthrax vaccines. And Bioport would eventually change its name to Emergent Biosolutions after the Pentagon was sued because... Um, it had a mandatory Bioport vaccine program, which was deemed illegal by a court because the vaccine had not been approved by the FDA for aerosol exposure to anthrax. And so, yeah, I think like six former soldiers and Pentagon employees would sue um, them. But Jerome Hauer would go on to be a member of the Emergent Biosolutions Board of Directors after, you know, he had pushed for all these government agencies to take contracts with the company, and he remains on their board to this day. But why this is especially interesting is because Emergent Biosolutions, um, you know, they would make vaccines for Zika and other viral outbreaks, as well as having a monopoly on Narcan, um, you know, so like what they give people if they overdose on heroin or something, they have an absolute monopoly on that. And uh, they actually sue any competitors who try to make a similar product for a cheaper price. But Emergent would also help manufacture both the J&J &J and AstraZeneca vaccines. And um, they didn't do a particularly great job. Actually, two to three million doses of AstraZeneca had to be thrown away due to cross-contamination, as well as a batch of J&J. And then in a separate incident, there would be 15 million doses of J&J &J that would have to be discarded um, because employees started, you know, just kind of mixing and matching ingredients from the AstraZeneca and the J&J. &J. There's often, you know, people who joke about mixing and matching different vaccines, but, you know, hell, just, you know, combine the two together into one vaccine and maybe you have like a super vax. Maybe that's what Emergent Biosolutions was trying to do. But um, anyways, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where um, Howard actually formally worked as the head of the Office of Public Health and Preparedness for a time. But anyways, um, the HSS would make Emergent cease its production of AstraZeneca. And later in the year of 2021, the FDA told, um, the FDA told Emergent to shut down production so that they could investigate until they were eventually, you know, given the green light to make more J&J once again. But um, Jerome Hauer wasn't the only person not to go to their office um, in the World Trade Center buildings on 9-11 and instead go on TV immediately after the attacks. You know, um, it seems like neocons who happen to, you know, work at um, either Kroll or Marsh and McLennan um, have a knack for this. But at the time of uh, 
the attacks, you know, just shortly after, the chief of risk management for Marsh McLennan, Paul Brimmer, um, who was a former managing director for Kissinger and Associates, would instead of being at his office in the World Trade Center, would be at NBC Studios talking about how, you know, it is most definitely Osama bin Laden who is behind the attack. So anyways, I will play a clip of that real quick. We want to turn now to uh, to a uh, guest who is joining us in the studio. Uh, it's Paul Bremer. I want to make sure I'm getting your name right because right. I'm just meeting you Hi. just at Thanks. this moment. You're a, you're a terrorism expert. Counterterrorism, I hope. And, and, and can talk to us a little bit about about uh, who, who could, I mean, there are a limited number yeah. of groups who could be responsible for something of this magnitude. Yes, this correct? is a very well-planned, very well-coordinated attack, which suggests it's very well organized centrally, and there are only three or four candidates in the world, really, who could have conducted this attack. Bin Laden comes to mind right away, Mr. Bremer. Indeed, he certainly does. Bin Laden was involved in the first attack on the World Trade Center, which had as its intention doing exactly what happened here, which was to collapse both towers. He certainly has to be a prime suspect, but there are others in the Middle East, and uh, there are at least two states, Iran and Iraq, which should at least remain on the list of potential suspects. What, what and so there we have it from Paul Bremer. And Paul Brimmer would actually go on to be the Iraqi occupation governor and oversee the American occupation of Iraq. So, uh, yeah, he's a guy who certainly has a, a lot of interesting ties to the whole 9-11 story, both the 9-11 uh, side and the subsequent invasion of Iraq. So, uh, anyhow, that's enough rambling about, you know... Uh, Kroll Associates guy, Jerome Hauer, and Rudy Giuliani, and Paul Brimmer, the chief of risk management at Marsh and McClellan, and uh, just, you know, I don't know, some certainly some very crazy stuff, but anyways, let's get back to Greenberg and some of the financial aspects of 9-11, because that's what I set out to initially talk about, but hey, Sometimes you go on a rabbit trail. But uh, in 1998, AIG invested $1.35 billion in a company by the name of the Blackstone Group, which was a private New York merchant bank and a company with close ties to AIG. And Greenberg even served for a time on its advisory board. So why am I bringing this up? Well, because in October of 2000, the Blackstone Group purchased the mortgage secured by the World Trade Center 7 building. And this isn't the half of, you know, how fishy this all gets. The year prior to the attacks, Marsh went into business with a company called Silverstream. And... Silverstream software um, would work on creating an electronic connection between Marsh and its major partners through internet portals in order to foster paperless transactions as well as expediting revenue and renewal cycles. And so Silverstream had created this internet-based trading platform, uh, internet-based trading platforms in the past for all different kinds of companies, Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, the list goes on and on. But the services it provided for Marsh and McClellan were different, uh, specifically the way that it connected Marsh to AIG. And as you'll remember, both were controlled by those in the Greenberg family. 
Um, so why would Marsh and AIG be interested in a type of transaction technology that no one in the world um, used at this time? They were the first to use it. Well, we'll have Mark Gaffney, the author of Black 9-11, summarize the story of Richard Grove, the former Silverstream salesman who had earned over a million dollars before turning 30, before his fundamental beliefs would crumble alongside the World Trade Center towers on the morning of September 11th. And so, once again, this comes from Black 9-11 by Mark Gaffney, which is where a lot of the information from this episode um, comes from. So if you want to check out that book, Black 9-11, Money, Motive, and Technology by Mark Gaffney, um, it's a good read and you can get some uh, more in-depth knowledge of a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today. But anyways, it says... Grove says he had first noticed fiscal irregularities in October 2000 when he and a colleague helped identify about $10 million in suspicious purchase orders. Marsh's chief information officer, Gary Laskow, later confirmed that certain vendors were deceiving Marsh, selling large quantities of hardware that were not necessary for the project. But Grove did not worry too much about this at the time, nor did he run into personal trouble until the spring of 2001. When he learned while negotiating a license renewal contract with Laskow that his own employer, Silverstream, had been overbilling Marsh to the tune of $7 million or more. Grove brought the matter to the attention of Silverstream executives, but was told to keep quiet and mind his own business. A Marsh executive advised him to do the same. By this point, a number of Marsh employees had earned Grove's trust, and when he shared his concerns with them, they agreed that something untoward was going on. Grove names these honest employees in his testimonial, who in addition to Gary Laskow included Catherine Lee, Ken Rice, Richard Bruhart, and John Oltzhofer. According to Grove, all of these individuals perished on 9-11, and a quick check confirmed that their names do indeed appear on the fatality list of the World Trade Center victims. The, proverb the proverbial manure hit the fan on June 5, 2001, the day after Grove sent an email to his sales team informing them that Silverstream was billing Marsh millions above and beyond the numbers we were being paid commissions on. There seems only two possibilities. Either the members of his team were being cheated out of their rightful commissions, or Silverstream was defrauding Marsh and McLennan. Later that day, Grove received word from Gary Laskow that Marsh had decided to retain Silverstream for the next phase of the project. He immediately informed his boss of the good news. Grove was personally delighted because his rightful commission would have been a payday well over a million dollars. He never collected it, however, because the next morning, Grove was summoned to his boss's office and abruptly terminated. This is not the end of the story. Several weeks later, Grove suffered a medical emergency that required hospitalization, emergency surgery, and weeks of recovery. In August 2001, while still bedridden, he was contacted by Silverstream's chief financial officer and authored $9,999 in cash plus an extension of his medical benefits if he would agree never to talk about the work he did for the company. Grove needed the continuing medical coverage and agreed to Silverstream's terms. During his convalescence, however, he became suspicious about the secrecy agreement and decided that, at the very least, he should maintain contact with the honest employees at Marsh, several of whom had become close friends. Shortly thereafter, one of them arranged for Grove to attend a meeting they had arranged at the offices of Marsh and McLennan. 
where they plan to openly question the suspiciously unconcerned executive who seemed to be at the center of the controversial secrecy. That executive had agreed to participate via a telephone conference link from his apartment in uptown Manhattan. This was the same individual who months before had warned Grove to look the other way. Grove claimed to be in possession of documents proving illicit activity, and he planned to produce them at the meeting. On the day of the showdown, however, he ran late, delayed by heavy Manhattan traffic. Grove says he was on Vesey Street between buildings 6 and 7 of the World Trade Center complex when the South Tower exploded, apparently from the impact of United Airlines 175. By then, all or most of his friends in the North Tower were already dead or trapped on the upper floors. All told, some 300 or more Marsh employees perished that morning, the victims of terrorists. Okay, so this conference call that took place on September 11th was confirmed by um, a lady named Ellen Clark in 2006, and she was Marsh's chief information officer at the time. So we do know that this meeting did indeed take place. And so, um, yeah, I mean, what a crazy story, um, you know. And, and, and this upper, uh, you know, person at Marsh, you know, is like, I'll, I'll talk to you guys from, you know, the video call in. But anyhow, so what information was lost when uh, the plane crashed into the section of the World Trade Center where Marsh and Silverstream just so happened to be working on this transaction technology? And perhaps the company Convar, a German company tasked with recovering the data from the hard drives found at the site, um, can let us in just a little bit on what it was that was going on. So what did Convar find? Well, an article from Reuters that was placed on Convar's website, quoting Convar's director, Peter Herschel, says, The suspicion is that the inside information about the attack was used to send financial transaction commands and authorizations in the belief that amidst all the chaos the criminals would have, at the very least, a good head start. Of course, it is also possible that there were perfectly legitimate reasons for the unusual rise in business volume. It could turn out that Americans went on an absolute shopping binge on that Tuesday morning. But at this point, there are many transactions that cannot be accounted for. Not only the volume, but the size of the transactions was far higher than unusual for a day like that. There is a suspicion that these were possibly planned to take advantage of the chaos. And so now we'll hear a separate um, person who worked at Convar discussed this. This is Richard Wagner, a data retrieval expert. There is a suspicion that some people had advanced knowledge of the approximate time of the plane crashes in order to move out amounts exceeding $100 million. They thought that the records of their transactions could not be traced after the mainframes were destroyed. And now we will take a look at a CNN article that has luckily been archived, and the title of the article is Computer Disk Drives from World Trade Center Could Yield Clues, and this was published on December 20th of 2001. An unexplained surge in transactions was recorded prior to the attacks, leading to speculation that someone might have profited from previous knowledge of the terrorist plot by moving sums of money. But because the facilities of many financial companies processing the transactions were housed in the New York World Trade Center, destroyed in the blast, it has until now been impossible to verify that suspicion. 
And so after Convar's initial investigation, which included working alongside the FBI, um, you know, trying to retrieve data from these hard drives, the company began to refuse to give any information on their findings. So uh, that's kind of where that stuff uh, ended up leading to. But, you know, we have some, you know, additional, uh, I guess you could say confirmation, or at least this is something very interesting. Um, and this is going to come from investigative reporter Michael Rupert, which, rest in peace, Michael Rupert. He would also, uh, you know, he was a former, I want to say, LAPD, if I'm not incorrect, narcotics detective, who would end up blowing the whistle on, you know, uh, the government bringing in cocaine into the country, and then he would go on to do a bunch of fantastic research. And uh, you know, Crossing the Rubicon is a great book for those of you guys who uh, are looking for something to read. But anyways, uh, Michael Rupert would say that he had heard from someone who worked at Deutsche Bank and the World Trade Center towers at the time that there was a 40-minute window of time between the time that the first plane and the second plane struck where the computer systems had been taken over from an external location. And Deutsch, as previously noted, they were a client of Silverstream. So um, all very interesting to say the least. And uh, I'm not going to read any more quotes. Well, I might read some more quotes from the book Black 9-11. But um, if you guys want to figure out some more about AIG... Um, you know, which is ran by Maurice Greenberg, um, you know, and that was, you know, about the stuff that we were just covering, you know, that was Marsha McLennan, you know, so that was uh, the uh, Jeffrey Greenberg, but um, there's some interesting stuff about AIG's probable involvement in the drug trade, um, and also how they might have factored into uh, the um, Elliot Spitzer, uh, you know, he was doing a probe into AIG and then he just so happened to, um, be outed right at that time as, you know, visiting prostitutes. So, uh, you know, they might've had something to do with, you know, the, that whole Elliot Spitzer fiasco, but, um, very interesting stuff. Another good reason to check out Black 9-11, um, but anyways, this is, you know, by no means the end of all the financial moves that were taking place on 9-11. And we will cover some of the insider trading now that was taking place on that day. And uh, yeah, just some uh, crazy stuff. And even in this episode, I mean, this is, you know, kind of a summary of some of the fishy financial transactions that were taking place on 9-11 but you know this is really only scratching the surface but anyways i'm gonna play a brief news clip for you and then we will get right back into all the uh the 9-11 funny business that was taking place federal officials have begun a major investigation into whether someone or many people benefited financially from the evil done to the country last tuesday not long before the attacks occurred, there were some financial transactions in the stock market that may indicate knowledge of the attack before it began. ABC's Antonio Mora is here. Whether they ever get to, if they ever get to the bottom of it, it will be astonishing. Astonishing, no question, Peter. What many Wall Street analysts believe is that the terrorists made bets that a number of stocks would see their prices fall. They did so by buying what are called puts. 
If you bet right, the rewards can be huge. The risks are also huge, unless, of course, you know something bad is going to happen to the company you're betting against. This could very well be insider trading at the worst, most horrific, most evil use you've ever seen in your entire life. One example, United Airlines. The Thursday before the attack, more than 2,000 contracts betting that the stock would go down were purchased. 90 times more in one day than in three weeks. When the markets reopened, United's stock dropped. The price of the contracts soared, and someone may have made a lot of money fast. $180,000 turns into $2.4 million when that plane hits the World Trade Center. It's almost the same story with American Airlines. That's a five-fold increase in the value of what was a $337,000 trade on Monday. All of a sudden becomes what? $1.8 million. And there's much more, including an extraordinarily high number of bets against Morgan Stanley and Martian McLennan, two of the World Trade Center's biggest tenants. Could this be a coincidence? This would be one of the most extraordinary coincidences in the history of mankind if it was a coincidence. It is absolutely unprecedented to see cases of insider trading uh, covering the entire world, from Japan to the United States and North America to Europe. ABC News has now learned that the Chicago Board of Options Exchange launched their investigation into the unusual trading last week. That may have given them enough time to stop anyone from profiting from death here in the U.S. It may also give investigators, Peter, a hot trail that might lead them to the terrorists. Thanks very much. As a reminder of the complex complications here, though, the Secretary of the Treasury said today of this investigation, you've got to go through ten veils before you get to the real source. Yep. Thanks, Antonio. And it was not just the airlines that, you know, people were placing put options on that, you know, make up the whole of the suspicious trading that was taking place on that day. But there were incredibly large and unusual amounts of put options that were also being placed on companies like J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America in Merrill Lynch, and the list goes on um, for a list of all the companies that, you know, the SEC was, you know, looking into suspicious trading um, in regards to 9-11 uh, that exists in the book Black and 9-11 that was um, previously mentioned. But for those of you who don't know um, what a put option is, in very simple terms, it's a type, in, a type of option that goes up in value as the stock falls in value. So essentially, it's just betting against a stock. So, you know, it's very interesting that we have all these people who are betting against, you know, United Airlines and American Airlines and other companies that were housed inside the World Trade Center buildings and stuff. But, um, and the weird trading, you know, wasn't restricted to put options either, but there was, you know, one example of a six-fold increase in call options on Raytheon that enabled the buyers to secure Raytheon shares at $25 and within the week that would rise to more than $34 a share. And so, you know, across the world, there was different people who were, you know, speaking out about some of the weird uh, trading that was taking place on 9-11. You know, people like the Belgian finance minister, the Italian foreign minister, and the head of Germany's central bank, Ernst Welk, who um, would say, what we found makes us sure that people connected to the terrorists must have been trying to profit from this tragedy. So, uh, you know, I mean, he puts it in pretty explicit terms right there. And, uh, 
you know, you can also find quotes from like the Belgian finance minister and stuff like that. And it wasn't just, you know, people who were working in different, you know, foreign governments who would say this, but there would be a host of academics and there would also be at least, you know, some option traders too who would voice their suspicion that people had foreknowledge and were trading on that foreknowledge and reaping in a crazy profit from that. Um, there are three separate academic studies that actually show findings consistent with insider trading. Um, and, you know, I'm, those are kind of, you know, dry and academically written and stuff like that. But perhaps I will uh, leave in the show notes links to those studies so that way you guys can go check it out for yourself if you so choose. But um, it was, you know, not just the... Um, these people who had noticed that something it was awry, but the SEC did as well. And the Security and Exchange Commission investigation wasn't just any old investigation, but it would end up being the largest in the agency's history. And the agency would work alongside the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Treasury on their investigation. And they would look into over 103 companies, but the result of their investigation was predictable which is essentially nothing to see here, folks. And there would actually be some evidence from their investigation that they would destroy as well. But 9-11 researcher Kevin Ryan gives us an interesting window into the type of people who may have been profiting off of this insider trading that was taking place. And I will once again leave a link to this in the show notes as well. But in Evidence for Informed Trading on the Attacks of September 11th, Ryan finds some very interesting information in an FBI briefing document from 2003 that would later be declassified in 2009. And this document describes the FBI's investigation into the purchase of 56,000 shares of Stratasec in the days leading up to the attacks. And Stratasec was a company that provided security systems to clients, including Dulles Airport, United Airlines, and the World Trade Center. And a little bit of uh, an ironic twist, but um, the trades were traced back to a couple who it is clear from the unredacted information is the CEO of Stratasec, Wirt D. Walker III, and his wife relatives of the Bush family, and Wirt was a business partner of Marge, Marvin Bush, the president's brother. And so Wirt would hire several people from the Carlisle Group to work at Stratasec, and the Carlisle Group had bin Laden family members as investors. And as many of you know, the Carlisle Group actually had a meeting at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Washington where none other than Bush Sr. was in attendance with the brother of Osama bin Laden. So that gives you an idea of the type of people who were, you know, um, this is one instance of who we can, you know, kind of deduce who was profiting from this insider trading that was going on. Wirt D. Walker III, who is tied in, um, you know, he's the CEO of Stratasec, you know, buying 56,000 shares of, you know, from his own company. And, uh, you know, he's connected all into the Bush family and the Carlisle group. And you have people on the morning of 9-11, like Bush Sr., who was, you know, just so happened to be, you know, 
talking it up with Osama bin Laden. What are the odds, you know? But of course, this is all shit that the 9-11 Commission couldn't be bothered with looking into. Nothing to see there, folks. Nothing strange about, you know, Bush Sr. and the brother of Osama bin Laden hanging out on 9-11 together. But in another instance of who could have possibly benefited from this insider trading that was taking place on 9-11, we will once again go back to Black 9-11, the book. And it says, Despite the best efforts of the SEC, a few details did leak to the world press. In mid-October 2001, the Independent reported, To the embarrassment of investigators, it has emerged that the firm used to buy many of the put options where a trader in effect bets on a share price fall on United Airlines stock was headed until 1998 by Alvin Buzzy Krongard, now executive director of the CIA. The evidence of malfeasance was buttressed by the fact that in one case the purchaser failed to collect what would have been $2.5 million in profits made from the collapsing price of United Airlines shares. The only plausible explanation was that a person or persons at the purchasing institution feared exposure and subsequent arrest. And so, yet again, we have another person who we can figure out was, you know, involved with this insider trading. And it is Alvin Buzzy Krongard. You know, so it's very interesting how you have uh, these neocons, you know, high up in the world of intelligence who just so happen to be the ones who were involved with this insider trading. But anyways, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode today. Like I said, I don't feel good. I have come down with something. But hey, we made it through this episode. We laid out some strange financial anomalies that were taking place on 9-11 and some of the financial motives for the 9-11 attacks. We also covered a little bit about Rudy Giuliani and, uh, you know, Jerome Hauer and the whole Kroll crowd who was bought up by AIG, um, you know. And so, you know, we kind of looked into a little bit of that nexus of strange connections to the 9-11 attack. But this was by no means whatsoever comprehensive at all. Um, 9-11 is one of the biggest can of worms one can possibly open. And it was for me, you know, something that, you know, I I had looked into the JFK assassination and I got red pilled on that and some stuff. But it's really when I got red pilled on the whole 9-11 thing that uh, my whole worldview kind of changed. And, you know, that I really started to look into all these deep state and parapolitical connections to everything i mean it's something that just kind of changes the way you think when you see the extent of chicanery that was going down on 9-11 so anyways hopefully you guys found this interesting i hope that you guys enjoyed it um sorry if this wasn't my best episode like i said i don't feel very good and i am probably going to take a nap and then wake up and edit this episodes that way i can get it to you guys but anyways even though i didn't feel good i did want to record an episode for the day because i didn't get one out there last week and i wanted to get something out there and i also apologize that this wasn't the most original stuff out there um this has been stuff that's you know been covered by a variety of other people but i thought that you know 
Sometimes it's good to hit the classics. Sometimes it's worth mentioning these things, and it's never bad to refresh your memory on these kinds of things. But anyways, sorry that this wasn't the most original subject ever, but I do have a good subject in mind for one of my next episodes that... uh, there is a book on it, but I don't believe that I've, you know, really heard anybody talk about it on their podcast or something, and it's not something that's very well known, and, uh, you know, it will have to do with, uh, how can I tease this without letting too much, um, out. It has to do with, you know, black money, and, you know, say if you were gonna do something like a killing JFK or a 9-11, you need a black budget to dip into. So I'm going to talk about um, an interesting thing um, in relation to a specific black budget. But anyhow, that will be for next week or something like that. But hopefully you guys enjoy this. Sorry if it wasn't my best episode. But I love you guys. wanted to put something out there. And I want to stay on the podcast grind. But anyways... Y'all take care. Have a good day. I'll talk to you soon. Man, you hear this bullshit they be talking? Every day, man, it's like these motherfuckers is just like professional liars, you know what I'm saying? It's wow. Listen. Ben Laden then blow up the projects. It was your nigga. Tell the truth, nigga. Push knock down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. Push knock down the tower. Tell the truth, nigga. No allegiance, nigga, fuck the president's speeches I'm baptized by America and covered in leeches The dirty water that bleaches your soul and your facial features Drowning you in propaganda that they spit through the speakers And if you speak about the evil that the government does The Patriot Act to track you to the type of your blood They try to frame you and say you was trying to sell drugs And throw a federal indictment on niggas to show you love This shit is run by fake Christians, fake politicians Look at their mansions and look at the conditions you live in All they talk about is terrorism on television Television. They tell you to listen, but they don't really tell you their mission They funded Al-Qaeda, and now they blame the Muslim religion Even though Bin Laden was a CIA tactician They gave him billions of dollars, and they funded his purpose Fahrenheit 9-11, that's just scratching the surface Bin Laden then blow up the projects It was yo nigga, tell the truth nigga Push knock down the tower Tell the truth nigga Push knock down the tower Tell the truth nigga Bin Laden then blow up the projects in Iraq still fight for Saddam but that's bullshit, I'll show you why it's totally wrong, cause if another country invaded the hood tonight, it'll be warfare through Harlem and Washington Heights, I wouldn't be fighting for Bush or white America's dream, I'll be fighting for my people's survival and self esteem I wouldn't fight for racist churches from the south my nigga, I'll be fighting to keep the occupation out my nigga, you ever clock someone who talks shit, but look at you wrong, imagine if they shot at you and was raping your moms, and of course Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons we sold them that shit after Ronald Reagan's election Mercenary contractors fighting a new era Corporate military banking off the war on terror They controlling the ghetto with the fear of attack Trying to distract the fact that they engineering the crack 
so I'm strapped like Lee Malvo holding a sniper rifle. These bullets are touch your kids, and I don't mean like Michael. Your body be sent to the morgue, stripped down and recycled. I fire on house niggas that support you and like you. Cause innocent people get murdered in the struggle daily. And poor people never get shit and struggle daily. This ain't no alien conspiracy theory. This shit is real. Written on a dollar underneath the Masonic seal. I'd rather see the president dead It's never been said, but I set precedence Bin Laden, blow up the projects It was your nigga, tell the